All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today is the man that continues to break his own records, Thomas J. Ord. Tom, how's it going? My own records. How am I breaking my own records? Yeah. So like last time you were on, you broke the record of most appearances on Rethinking Faith. And then this time you broke that record. Very so good. I oh. think this is your fifth time. And oh. like the record was three, you broke it at four. Now you broke four to five. So like you're the reigning champion. That's because I have <laughs> such a good time having conversations with you and talking about stuff that matters. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Oh, most definitely. Thank you, you know, for geez, let's see, three years ago, the first time I ever reached out. Uh if I recall, you responded relatively quickly, like the same day that I reached out and was like, I'm going to try to get a theologian on the podcast. Let's see what happens. And you were like, yeah, sure. Cool. And I was blown away. So cool. And now number five, it's exciting. Well, well I try to respond quickly to inquiries. Sweet. Well, you did a good job. And now, now we're back here hanging out. So that's fun. <laughs> but I, uh, Tom, I thought, you know, normally in the beginning I would be like, Oh, let me, you know, ask, these questions that I ask everyone, but since you, you've been on five times, I thought this time I wanted to share a story with you. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And just see what you think. So recently there is a individual, I will not name them just because I did not ask the permission to share the story uh, that has become a close friend of mine after uh, my current job uh, making beer. And they're a person that comes in to the brewery that I work at a lot. Uh, they're, they're actually, they don't work there, but they're like deeply involved. They help with a bunch of stuff and they're, they're always there. And they're currently going through like a very difficult time in their life. Uh, their father, they, uh, is basically dying from cancer and like in a very slow and not great way. I mean, not that dying ever is, <laughs> you know, no, great, but, yeah. um, and so he, like about a week ago, started to open up to me about this. And 
uh, was really struggling because his dad was a Southern Baptist pastor for like 45 years, which I, I had no idea his dad was a pastor. And I've known uh, this guy now for like over a year. And he knows that I used to be a pastor, but he never shared this information with me. Um, but he, fi- he finally did. And he was saying, Josh, like, I'm having a really hard time. And like, I just, I don't understand, like, why is, why is God doing this to my dad? Uh, you know, or why is God allowing this to happen to my dad? Like, he's the greatest, you know, man of, of God that I know you know, very Christ-like person. Why is this happening? I was excited. I was like, all right, time for some, uh, for some uh, open and relational theology. And my buddy was like, I, you know, I feel so bad, like even asking these kind of questions. Like, I think God's going to throw a lightning bolt at me and like strike mm-hmm. me or something. And I said to them, like, kind of offhand, and I was like, no, nah, man, like, that's, that's not how God works. Like, God's not like that. You don't have to worry about that. And then I was like, can I tell you, how I might look at this situation. They're like, yeah, sure. And then I proceeded to give like my 15 minute version <laughs> or love it. a 10 minute version of, uh, you know, essentially went through like essential kenosis, God can't, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, you know, oh, thanks. That's really helpful. They asked some follow-up questions and um, you know, the night ended, they left. It was good. And I was like, you know, well, well done, Josh, you know, good for you. <laughs> and uh, today I saw them again and we were sitting down talking and having a beer together and they were like, Hey, like, I just want to, you know, thank you again. That conversation we had the other day was really good. Um, I've been thinking about it ever since we talked and, uh, I would like to like, you know, maybe just the two of us, like go somewhere else, you know, not, not here at full tilt, uh, and like, you know, have a few beers and, and talk some more. I'd like to, to get your ideas about some things like, okay, sounds good. It was like, but there's one thing that you said that's really been standing out to me. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, thank you. I appreciate it. What was it? And, you know, I was expecting some like deep, profound thing to come from my friend. It was like, remember when you said that, like, I can ask questions and God's not going to throw a lightning bolt at me. And I was like, yeah. He was like, that really has been so helpful. And I've thought a lot about that. And I was like, out of this whole big, beautiful, profound thing that I thought I told you, that's what you took away. Yeah. Wow. But then, but then at the same time, it like, at that moment, I like kind of stepped back and I was like, huh. But at least that's, you know, something was taken away. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, even yeah. if it was what I deemed as this like offhanded comment that did something for my friend and is continuing to do something. Yep. And like, I thought I had given like this very, like, here's a profound, like, maybe you can yeah. look at it differently kind of thing. And like, even though that was helpful, that's not what he remembered. And so I thought it was yeah. really interesting. And I like, at first I was irritated, but then I was like, kind of humbled, like, oh, okay. But like, somehow <laughs> God still worked through this situation, even yeah. though it wasn't in the way that I thought, you know, God was going to. So I don't know. I want to share that with you. Just see what you yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> that is good. You know, psychologists tell us that so much of our fundamental views of reality are given to us in the first five or six years of our lives. And that's true even of our theology. And while many people can cognitively uh, look at that 
the some of the views they were given as children about who God is, someone who throws lightning bolts, someone who, you know, punishes, etc. They can look at that and think, oh, that's not really how I think God is. They still continue to wrestle with that subconsciously. And they need to be reminded that God doesn't throw lightning bolts. So I, I'm not that surprised that that was the big thing that this person walked away with. Mm. Yeah, and I think what's cool about it, too, is it like perhaps opened up a door, you know, for further conversation. Yeah. Uh, to just to see, but it, I don't know. It was just, it was humbling to, to like, kind of, I don't know how to like say this properly, but it was, it was like humbling in a sense because it like, I felt like it like kicked me down a level, so to speak, where it's like, Josh, like you're not as cool and as smart as you think you are. <laughs> and like, sometimes the like, grandiose ideas or something like that that you find super helpful is not necessarily the thing that's going to like someone else is going to find helpful oh, sometimes yeah. the thing that you think is silly is actually the thing that someone else needs to hear good point yeah. um yeah. and like yeah so i was like huh that's i don't know that's really interesting uh so now i just i have to find a way to say the profound things in ways that are silly <laughs> well, you I mean, I don't know about you in terms of preaching, but how many times have I preached a sermon? I thought I hit it out of the park with some really radical, innovative ideas. And it's the comments of people afterwards. It's, it's usually some minor issue that they remember. So that's just the way, you know, people, people end up queuing in to things they are thinking about and probably most need, even if it's not what you think is most important. <laughs> yeah, no, most definitely. I, uh, I agree with that. It's, it's actually funny you brought up sermons because uh, I told that story to uh, a buddy of mine, Jace, uh, on my way home from work today. Cause I was like, Hey Jace, do you want to like hear a story where I make a fool of myself? And uh, it's like funny to laugh at. And he was like, yeah, sure. Of course. I always want to hear stuff like that. <laughs> so I, I shared with him um, and we talked about that. Like, yeah, like there, I mean, I've had that experience countless times, like preach a sermon, thought I did something really cool. And then yeah. some like offhanded comment that I just like said was like the thing that someone was like, oh my goodness, that was so great. And you're like, wait a minute. That, was that in the sermon? I said that. That's weird. Like that wasn't the point. <laughs> uh, cool. But Anyway, I, I just, I don't know. I want to share that with you and uh, go from there. But I do think uh, it'd be fun to, even though I won't say his name, I want to dedicate this episode to my buddy uh, Good. from the bar <laughs> and to our future conversations and uh, to his father, uh, the man of God that, that my buddy says he, he is and was. So friend, if you're listening you know who you are it's for you but uh tom i don't know how you do it but somehow you wrote another book <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's called Plurform love an open and relational theology of well-being um and it when did it release uh like a week or two ago now yeah end of february i guess okay cool so um for starters, I, I was just going to ask you the question that, you know, probably everyone always asks, 
But like you've written a lot of books about love um, and have continued to write about love. So why, why this book? Why a book called Chloroform Love? What's the, what's the story behind this? Well, this is a more academic book than some of books I write. I actually write about half my books for the academy and half for kind of the average person on the street. This one is more on the academic side of things. I wanted to do um, two or three, maybe even four things with this book. First of all, I wanted to say that love ought to be the center of theology, but give reasons why so many theologians and biblical scholars don't consider love central, and uh, then provide a definition of love that I think could overcome some of the barriers, the obstacles to uh, kind of a more conceptual framework in which love is centered. I also wanted to do a lot more biblical work because uh, a lot of people have ideas about what love is, especially people from Christian and Jewish traditions who uh, maybe have not looked very carefully at what the ancient languages uh, have, to, the ancient love words in the, these languages are all about. And so, for instance, there's all kinds of errors in thinking about what the meaning of agape is because uh, Christians know that that's the word in the New Testament most often used for love. Um, so I wanted to you know, look at scripture. So there's lots of Bible in this book. I also wanted to address what I thought were huge problems in the Christian tradition itself, problems that arise from what many people call classical theism, a, a conventional way of looking at God through uh, people like Augustine and uh, Christian reformers in the Protestant tradition. And then finally, you know, I want to ride in the end on a white horse and give all the answers. <laughs> I want to give uh, what I think is the best way or better way, at least, to think about uh, the diversity of love, not only that God expresses toward us, but also the diversities of love that God calls us to express toward ourselves, toward others, toward God, toward creation. Yeah, for sure. Right on. Well, I think, um, huh, like, I think the, the issue that you first talked about, like, uh, of like this idea that, um, ever, I think most Christians, at least I would hope most Christians, when you talk to them, if you said, Hey, do you agree that God is love or maybe God is loving or something like that? They'd probably say, yeah, God is loving. Uh, but like you really pointed out that that becomes very confusing very fast. Like, what do we mean by this word love? And at first that can seem, you know, maybe perhaps a little bit like, oh, like that's a silly question. But really, when you actually dive into it and start thinking about it, you realize that when we use the word love, especially in our, our you know, culture and context today it can mean a whole bunch of things. Right. Like when I say I love pizza and I love God, that's like probably two different things. Or like I love pizza and God loves are probably different or something like that. And so I think uh, you did a helpful job of like kind of uh, diving into this question of like the confusion around this word love. And so yeah. I was wondering if if maybe you wanted to, to speak to and maybe help uh, listeners who um aren't quite seeing it like what is this confusion around the word love and why do you think it's so important to have like a help like a working definition so to speak that we can kind of go from 
Yeah, that word love has not only a lot of meanings in popular culture, it's got a lot of meanings in academic scholarship and literature. Sometimes love simply means a strong desire for something. So you mentioned loving pizza. You have a strong desire to eat a pizza right now. Sometimes love means a warm set of feelings. So maybe, you, you know, I've got grandchildren now and I have these warm feelings toward them. Is that what love is? Is it, is it all about feelings and emotion? Uh, other people say, no, no, it's not about feelings. Love is a choice. You choose the good. That's love. Well, that's yet a third way of thinking about love. Or some people today say love is relationships. You know, on Facebook, if you want to indicate you are with somebody, you say, I'm in a relationship. And there's a little heart for love. So we've got all these different ways of thinking about love, and some of these differences are in the scriptures themselves. And so given this cacophony of uh, understandings, it's understandable why some theologians even would want to shy away from putting love at the center of their theology, and probably why some Christians don't use that L word as much either, because they're worried that they'll be misunderstood. So in this book, I propose a definition of love. I say that to love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. And then I say that's the heart or the core definition of love. Now we have all kinds of different expressions or forms of that love. Or the little phrase that I use often is, Love's meaning is uniform. Love's expressions are pluriform. Yeah, that. So I really, I really like your definition. Thank <laughs> I you. I thought, yeah, I thought it was, it was, uh, it was helpful, and it helps kind of break through some of the, um, some of the distractions, I guess. And I, I enjoyed too when you were. Um, kind of you interacted with two different theologians uh one who i was very familiar with because i read their the book that you referenced their uh was their ethics book and that's you know richard hayes uh the other guy i wasn't quite quite too familiar with um millard erickson i believe yeah. is his name um but it was just interesting i thought that was helpful the way that you 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 know interacted with both of them just to kind of help um prove this point that love is uh or the, at least the language can be somewhat elusive and then also like Hayes just like straight up says like here's why I don't put love at the center <laughs> and yeah. then like Erickson seems to and this was always and I still argue with my reformed friends about this like within his perspective love just seems not to like mean anything until we apply it you know what i mean like it's just like a yep. weird word that we just say because it sounds nice but then we like redefine it every time we use it because exactly. somehow whatever god does is loving uh so yeah, i that's great point so many in that <laughs> tradition you know we sometimes call this reform theology that's probably mm -hmm. not the best way uh, i call it in the book uh, uh quasi or soft calvinism and uh, it's a way of talking about God's relationship to us, God's power, God's um, various attributes, that by the end of the, of the discussion of describing who God is, 
they seem to kind of tack on love there, but it doesn't really mean what love means in our day-to-day lives. You know, this God of love and their perspective is so loving, he sends people to hell for eternity. This God of love is so loving that he allows rape and genocide. This God is so loving, this God doesn't have any feelings or emotions. This God is so loving, God's only really concerned about God's self. And none of those, that just doesn't sound right to the way we think about love. And I think that theology ought to be rejected. I could have, you know, picked a really easy person like, let's say, John Piper and really gone to town on him. But I picked Millard Erickson in part because he's not quite as stringent (laughs) in some of the claims he makes. And I wanted readers to think carefully about what doctrines of predestination really imply or doctrines that say God is uh, totally unaffected, unfeeling, unemotional, what that really means. And Erickson allows me to do that. Mm. Yeah, I thought I thought your interaction was was super helpful. And also, um, I just I want to point something out uh, within the bit you wrote uh, with Erickson. And then I want to jump back to your definition of of love. But I had I had this like real experience. It was weird. I was sitting here reading and then there's a bit where uh, as you're breaking it down, there's a a section under the Erickson uh, bit where it says God loves himself. And then you have a quote from Erickson where he says, God must choose his own glory ahead of all else, says Erickson. To do anything else would, in fact, be a case of idolatry. And when I read that line, I literally laughed out loud. <laughs> um, and I like had to stop reading and be like, why did I just laugh? Yeah. But there was something about it that like. I don't know. So I like I texted my buddy, Jace, who Jace, again, Old Testament scholar, studied Westminster Theological Seminary, uh-huh. uh, very much within the Reformed camp, um, although he asks great questions. So I like hanging out with Jace. Um, but I texted him that and I was like, dude, this actually made me just laugh out loud. <laughs> and then he tried to defend it. And I tried to, like, articulate why why it made me laugh out loud but i think it's because i see uh this is like another weird way the word love is being used mm-hmm. because i see like that idea seems so counterintuitive <laughs> and contradictory to my understanding of like love defined by the person of jesus that's like jesus didn't go around just like being into himself and like <laughs> loving himself like at all so it just seemed it seemed crazy to me like ludicrous like i understand within the systematic theology why that claim has to be made but i think like you rightly pointed out in the book it just makes words meaningless <laughs> right like a right. weird experience When you get this, I explained it a little bit more later in the chapter on Augustine, where I say that Augustine doesn't think of love in terms of promoting well-being or helping others or doing good to others. Augustine thinks of love about desire. And so he has he thinks of love as like the pizza thing. Uh, If I love pizza, I desire pizza. Well, so then he runs this whole theology through this and he says, okay, so if love is desire and we ought to desire what's most desirable, the greatest good, 
well, then we ought not to ultimately desire pizza. We ought to ultimately desire God. And since God is really smart, God knows it's also smart to desire what's ultimately most desirable, which is God. So God ultimately loves God's self. <laughs> so if God were to love us in the sense of desiring us, that would be idolatry. It would be, it'd be, it would be uh, putting what's ultimate towards something that's not really ultimate. And this whole theology spins out of this. It's not just in Roman Catholicism. It's also in many, not all, but many reformers like Millard Erickson. So fundamentally what we have to do to correct that, in my view, and I think largely supported by scripture, is to say love isn't primarily about desires. Love is primarily about promoting well-being, doing good, being a blessing, living abundant life, helping, etc. Yeah, and I think too, it's it's helpful to point out like just how influential uh, Augustine has been within mm -hmm. the Christian tradition, like especially Western Christianity as a whole. Like Augustine's like super influential, and there's like some stuff that Augustine says that I like want to like give him a big high five and yeah. say like cool, awesome. Uh, but then there's like most of the time, if I'm honest, I just find myself like this, like hand in my palm, like Augustine, uh, like it makes like I get it. If I contextualize you and put you like, like I said, into your context and try to figure out like what you're trying to say, your time and place, like it at least gives me more respect for what you are doing. But it's like, come on, man, like. <laughs> well and it's not that Aug yeah. everything augustine says is bad i'm not right this right, is not right. A book saying augustine's a moron right this is a book that says that you know augustine's view of god and his view of love don't match scripture and they end up painting him into really weird corners like saying god is not relational uh, or his way of saying it would be god is impassable uh, god is outside of time god is simple God has no relations. God doesn't act. God has no emotions. And, um, you know, I can make sense of all that because I know academic theology. I, I don't agree with it, but I can make sense of it. But when you just take those ideas and compare them with the dominant view of God in the Old and New Testament, they just don't match up. And I don't think they match up with our personal experience and intuitions about love. They don't also match well up with contemporary science and the way contemporary culture thinks about reality and existence. Um, so there's lots of reasons to reject that way of thinking, even though Augustine has some good things to say about other issues. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's something that I've been trying to work on myself uh, when it comes to reading uh, people maybe that I perhaps disagree with instead of just like dismissing them entirely and being like, oh, Augustine is an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like actually being like, well, wait a minute, let's interact with Augustine, see what he's saying, and then try to find common ground and then also still be able to interact in a way where it's like, but here's like where I differ with Augustine. And I think hopefully that's just like a part of like maturing. I don't know. Yep. Uh, but I think, I don't know, I, I, I think it's interesting. And it works the other way around, too. You know, um, I really like Richard Rohr. I'm reading one of his books now that I actually first heard on audio, uh, his uh, Universal Christ book, 
Uh, I love that book. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. But there's some things in there that I disagree with him on. And I've come, I, I can also look at people I really like whose work I generally affirm, but find things here and there that I don't affirm and realize, you know, I can like them, but I don't have to like everything about them. <laughs> I can like most of their ideas, but not all of their ideas. So it works that way as well. Yeah, actually, since you brought up Richard Rohr, uh, one thing that actually I have found, like Rohr speaks this way, but then also um, I read a lot of uh, some like Buddhist teachers. Uh, like Thich Nhat Hanh is like, yeah. I've read an insane amount of his work. Yeah. And uh, like when he died and I read it, it actually made me cry. And I was like, mm. this is crazy because I've never met this person. But it like it yeah. did something to me, you know. Um, but I find within a lot of like Buddhism, but actually in some of Roar's work, they will talk about like explaining away evil, so to speak, is like like wrong or like missing the point or something like that and yeah. that rather like evil is almost like a i don't like necessary kind of is like what they're saying but it's like like it's required almost like you need the yeah. suffering to get good or like to know what it is or understand it and like whenever i read them that that idea kind of always at least in my head seems like it's like bumping up against some of like uh like god can't stuff you right. know something like yep. that uh so is it like is that somewhere where you find yourself disagreeing i've always wanted to ask right. you that but never yes, had like a is. good opportunity yeah yeah and you know for me there's a distinction between uh suffering that's pointless and suffering that brings about some good so just to suffer isn't necessarily evil but there is some suffering that is genuinely evil and that's a point that um, at least uh, Richard doesn't always point out. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, he comes from another tradition, so he doesn't have the theological dimension there. But um, I, I'm admirer of both those people as well. But I can find things here and there that I don't agree with. And I think that's part of maturing as a thinker, you know, to be able to be uh, discerning even in relation to those people you admire most. Yeah. So for you and it, that, I think that distinction is interesting within suffering and forgive me, cause this is not necessarily what poor form love is about, but I, yeah. uh, but the, so the, the distinction in suffering, like between like, I guess, is that almost like genuine evil would be what right. you would consider as like, like this suffering is actually is terrible or some suffering is not, yeah. um, yeah, you know, when um, my wife and I decided to have children, we knew there was going to be some suffering that come with it. And not only suffering in childbirth for my wife, but just the day to day, you know, um, being a part of a family. That's just kind of the way the world works. Uh, so we still chose to have children because we thought despite that suffering, we think the world can be a better place with these children. And we, you know, we can help them live good lives and et cetera, et cetera. So suffering in and of itself isn't evil, but there are some things that are generally evil. Uh, I haven't come across any rape that I think is just, uh, you know, making the world a better place. Um, genocide. I think that's genuine evil. Torture, genuine evil. 
Uh, now, it can be the case that people can learn something from even genuine evils. So in my God Can't book, I talk about squeezing something good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. But that doesn't mean it's now a good thing. It still can be genuinely evil because the world is worse because it happened. And yet we can squeeze something good from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's almost like this like image of like divine alchemy or something where God can take something evil and and squeeze it or or spin it into good like so would you so do you think that there's then there that there is like necessary suffering in the world or do you think okay like is that i think suffering is going to be inevitable inevitable okay which is different than saying necessary right right yeah exactly yeah Hmm. yeah cool Um, yeah it's going to be inevitable given finite existence here it's important, and actually this does come up in Pluriform Love. I have a section near the end where I kind of go through my problem of evil answers, and I add a new section in which I talk about why it's important, I think, to reject creation out of nothing, to say that God didn't start from absolute nothingness, even though uh, at the beginning of our universe, the Big Bang, um, there was not the same kind of habits and forces we have now in the world, but I think God created out of something and God does so in every moment. And that's important because that means that God doesn't start off and decide, huh, shall I stick suffering in this world or should I take suffering out of this world? Should I make a world in which there's going to be feelings? And so therefore people are going to suffer. or should I have a feelingless world. No, I think God always creates in relation to what God previously created with a goal for greater beauty, well-being, love, and peace. And with the increased um, chance for greater love, you have to have increased capacities and diversities within creatures. And that includes the increased possibility of suffering. So suffering, again, isn't... um, necessary but the possibility is going to be necessary there obviously well maybe not obviously i hope for a day in which all creation cooperates with god and so there's no unnecessary suffering in in creation that's what i think most christians mean by heaven but um rejecting creation out of nothing allows me to say you know god didn't set everything up exactly like the way things are Yeah, I can say God always creates in relation to creation, and there are certain elements that are necessary to exist, and among those is, among complex creatures, the possibility for suffering. So within a framework where, like, you know, we reject the idea of creation ex nihilo, um, does this, does this, like, basically mean that, like, uh god and creation aren't like necessarily like intertwined like god so like god can't exist without creation or like god necessarily is creating always like what is the yeah the way you say it's going to make a big difference Uh, i figured as much (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) if you say it well god can't exist without creation that sounds like god depends on creation in order for god to exist i'm not saying that i think god exists necessarily nothing could end god's existence however i'm also saying that 
God always creates creaturely others and is always in relationship with creaturely others. So I think you were used the word intertwined. And that's a way of saying this, this um, essentially relatedness between God and creation. And that means when I say always, I mean everlastingly so. The idea is that God creates in one moment out of that which God created in the previous moment. And God's creating has no absolute beginning. That means there's always going to be creaturely others for whom God to relate and create from and to love moment by moment. Yeah. And uh, listeners, she can't see, but I have a big grin on my face because uh, this kind of <laughs> stuff excites me and makes me happy. Um, <laughs> but uh, also, I think, Tom, it's worth noting while we're talking about the creation next deal a bit, um, like at least within the Genesis narrative, I don't think you can get creation ex nihilo out of it because in the beginning, no. it doesn't say there was nothing right. There's like That's right. a dark and formless void. Like basically it's this image of God bringing order out of chaos. It's like right. what we see at least within the pages of, of, of scripture and like creation ex nihilo is almost like, um, what is it called? Like a, a necessary, um, not requirement, but like a necessary conclusion of like a specific set of theology. Like this is, this is where this leads. We have yeah. to affirm creation next Nilo because of this. That's kind of how it gets birthed rather. Yeah. So if it well, makes interestingly, you... the, the birth of the idea of creation out of nothing doesn't come from your traditional Christian uh, theologians. It comes from a couple of Gnostics and their worry was uh, that the world is inherently evil and they didn't think a pure and righteous God, holy God, would want to interact with such an evil world. And so they came up with the idea of creation out of nothing is to say, well, God didn't create out of something that was evil. God created out of absolute nothingness. And then things got started. And then some of the early Christians like Tertullian picked it up and realized, well, if we say this, we've got a God who has a kind of omnipotent power to do absolutely anything. And so they thought they were kind of uh, bolstering or, or um, uh, um, augmenting or championing God's omnipotence if they had a God who created out of nothing. But of course, as you and I have pointed out in many conversations, if you have that view of omnipotence, then you have a God who is responsible for the evils of the world. And um, I don't think you can reconcile that with God being perfectly loving. Yeah. Most definitely. Well, I guess I will stop chasing my rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mind if I, I actually no uh, go for tie it. in your rabbit into yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rabbits are I mean, fun. Well, maybe rabbits are good. Maybe I need to stop being so harsh on myself. <laughs> well, it it's kind of a little insight into the writing of this book, Pluriform Love. Uh, when I first started it, you know, I have some ideas about what I want to say and where I want to go. But in the writing of every book that I do, there's always some new things that come out that I didn't plan at the beginning. And this particular book, it was the idea of what I call essential hesed. Those listeners who haven't been a part of our past conversations will not know that I introduced an idea called essential kenosis in my Uncontrolling Love of God book that came out in 2015. And the basic idea there is that God's very nature is this self-giving, 
others empowering and therefore uncontrolling love. This kenosis of God is God's very nature. And if we think God is like this, then we think that God can't control anyone or anything and therefore isn't culpable for the genuine evils of the world. Well, as I was writing this book, I wanted to do some stuff on the Jewish word for uh, that's usually translated steadfast love, hesed or chesed. Uh, and I realized that what I really wanted to say could best be summarized in talking about essential hesed. So hesed is the, we get this word often in the Psalms where it says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And this steadfast love of God is a way of talking about God's, you know, continual love for creation. But unfortunately, there are some texts in the Old Testament, especially in which God threatens to withdraw love, threatens to step out of the covenant, is so angry with the Israelites for dropping their end of things that God says, I might abandon you. There's some threats like that. At the same time, there's also things in the Old Testament in which God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. This steadfast love is, this covenant is forever. So you got both of these themes in the Old Testament itself. Is God going to leave us or does God really can't leave us? And so I suggest that we call essential hesed, the idea that God's very nature is love for creation. And God simply can't abandon us, can't forsake us, can't leave us, because it's God's very nature to be in a loving relationship, not only with humans, but with all of creation. And as I thought about that steadfast love being absolutely forever, I realized I could dovetail that in with my rejection of creation out of nothing. I could say, yeah. God's always been creating, always been relating, always been loving, because literally the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Essential Hesed. I so I love the essential uh Hesed like a lot. And I got so excited about it because, like I said. I keep bothering my friend Jace about open and relational theology. <laughs> and uh, so, and he's an Old Testament scholar. So when I saw that you were interacting with like this, you know, idea within the Old Testament, I was like, hey, Jace, like this is yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I love the, just the, I think it, it ties in nicely too. And it, it seems like it can be another, like we were talking about um, prior to starting to record um, I, I was telling you, I think one thing that you do so well is, uh, you're almost, you're able to like build bridges, um, between different camps. And I think you do a really helpful job of creating an environment where people like myself who came out of like an evangelical tradition, um, can find stuff that they understand that they resonate with. And then you can take that common starting point and then like maybe offer like a different direction for it. And so I think the essential has said is like in the same way, doing a very similar thing because covenant, like covenant theology is like huge in like some, uh, you know, some circles. And so being able to talk about like God's covenantal love that is like essential 
it, I was, I, I don't know. I just got so excited about that. I really, good, good. I really liked it. And uh, it, yeah. And, and, and enjoy the, like you said, the, the dovetailing there. Um, oh, I'm happy yeah, to hear so. that. And it's not just the evangelical, obviously, you know, this, but um, you know, I have lots of footnotes in that section from major Jewish scholars who are also wrestling with these questions, you know, will the God of Israel abandon Israel? And um, the, you know, most of them say no, but I don't know that any of them have a, a, a little term to summarize this idea that God must stay in covenant. So perhaps essential Hesed will help that community as well. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that, but I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that that's a good point. And I think it, too, when you speak, it just, um, it reminds me, and I'm terrible with chapter and verse, so forgive me. Uh, it's how you know I was never truly a good evangelical pastor. Um, <laughs> but it it just it calls to mind that story of uh, you know um, back in the day when like two kings would, like make a covenant with with one another, and then they would like split an animal in half, you know, mm. separate it, and then the two kings would walk in between. The animal together basically saying like yeah like if you know one of you breaks his covenant that animal that's going to happen to you <laughs> it's like yeah, an, like yeah. an agreement and uh but then we have i forget the the story but basically the same thing happens um and like it, like god kind of orchestrates it with with the priest and instead of the you know both of them walking together god kind of does it by god's self mm. you know basically insinuating like i'm going to be the sole one that holds up you know the the covenant so to speak mm -hmm. um because you're gonna jack it up probably but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna keep doing it uh so like that that story comes to mind and i feel like that that ties in nicely uh, yes beautifully yeah with the story but so like then within the idea of essential has said if in in situations where like god you know, maybe like threatens to turn God's back or like threatens to pull away or something like that. Um, do you just see those as like, are these empty threats? Is this just like the author's projection, something like that? Like how, how would you talk about, uh, yeah, something like that? Yeah. One of the things I do in this book, maybe more than any other book I've ever been a, a written is not only talk about and use biblical uh, passages, but also come right out and say, sometimes the Bible writers are wrong about God. I don't pussyfoot around things like so many biblical scholars do. I just say, look, if you're really going to take the whole of scripture seriously, and Jesus in particular seriously, you're going to have to take some parts of scripture and say, the biblical writers misunderstood God. And this is one of those instances. If we think God's love really is steadfast, that God can't break covenant, then any kind of statement about God abandoning the people must be a misunderstanding of what God's all about. I suppose you could say God's just making an empty threat, but that doesn't portray a loving God, a picture of a loving God. So I think it's better just to say the people who write this are anthropomorphizing God in ways inappropriate for who God is. And so they just get God wrong. 
I use the same kind of logic when I come across passages in scripture in which God wants or causes genocide, death, uh, other kinds of evils. I just say, look, um, the God portrayed in Jesus and in the majority of scripture is a God who wants life, who forgives, who's not in the punishing business. And so we should criticize these passages that portray God otherwise. And instead of saying, well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways, or we just have to trust the Bible, even though we don't understand it, we should just come out and say, nope, some of these passages screw it up. They get God wrong, and we should just name it. Which uh, it makes sense, too, if we're honest with ourselves, because like, at least in my experience, if I look back on like past versions of Josh, there are things that I have said and taught about God that now I would be like, Oh, I don't, <laughs> you know, yep. like, I don't know. That seems kind of, that's not right. I, I disagree with that. Yeah. Um, and so then like, just like, I don't know, maybe that's it sounds silly to listeners, but also maybe it sounds helpful, right? Like if you put yourself in their, their shoes, um, I mean, I guess, depending on what you think the word inspiration means, which like talk about another word like love that is hard to define. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. ask, well, ask. And another good one. I mean, inspiration is also a word when someone says they're inspired to do something like maybe they're inspired to sing a song, something inspired them. No one thinks that that something somehow took control of their body and totally made them into a robot. They think that they're somehow working in light of this inspiration. Likewise, I think we can talk about scripture being inspired, but sometimes people in misunderstand that inspiration. And um, because I think God is an uncontrolling God, God can't fix their errors and they're right there in the Bible. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's actually, it's funny. This is a point that uh, I, there's a family member of mine uh, who I have uh, connected you two before um but we argue about this all the time he's like no if like you know god is you know whatever people say god is then like god would have done a better job giving a freaking book that would have been easier to read and understand and you wouldn't have to say all this silly stuff about it (laughs) it's like it's like well like i'm i'm not making the claims that you're accusing me of making and he's like well i don't like the the answers you're giving me i'm like okay great well that's not helpful anymore (laughs) <laughs> but the the inspiration is interesting especially too when you have this framework of uh you know that you're operating in this this god who's not controlling but rather uh alluring um or something like that yes um you can become inspired and allured uh to do something and just because that's the case it doesn't mean like everything you do is going to be a hundred percent like accurate or correct or something like that like right um like you were saying a great artist or a great musician can be inspired to write a piece or something like that and so i think like a lot of what we see going on in scripture and this ties in nicely with the the open and relational understandings is that like people the authors of scripture are interacting with this god who is love and then they're doing their best to interpret and describe their situation within their cultural context uh and then like theologize it (laughs) and like try to make sense of it 
and people like get stuff wrong sometimes but that doesn't mean it wasn't inspired uh yeah and 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 totally agree with you i mean i think about this because i'm a uh an artist who does photography um i like to think that god inspires my photography but i wouldn't want to take every photograph and say this is exactly what god wanted this is me just being a robot and god controlled me to make this photograph no i want to say i made the photograph i was inspired by the beauty of the situation that i think god was a part of but it wasn't god who did it alone god inspired me to do it and this was my best response to that inspiration yeah no for sure i i I think that's a really uh a helpful metaphor and also too your photography is awesome tom i i enjoy (laughs) i enjoy seeing the pictures that you take and and post them online thanks uh and then we we can take your inspiration metaphor one step further and i can say when I look at Tom's photographs, I get inspired right, to, to yeah. think about uh, this God of creation. So there's another, <laughs> another way of, of inspiration. Um, but so in, I guess, uh, a helpful question, just, uh, you know, sometimes uh, compare and contrast can be a helpful tool uh, to make things clear. And I, we've talked about this, I mean, throughout the conversation, but um, if you had to kind of say, like, here's what I see happening in a lot of classical theism when it comes to talking about the love of God, and here's what I'm offering that looks somewhat different in plural love, like, what, what kind of things might you want to point to? Or, like, yeah. what, what do you feel like your idea of God's plural love, these different ways that God shows love? is offering that is separate or maybe looks a little bit different uh, from what, you know, someone like me uh, who grew up within classical theism or someone who might still find themselves there. uh, How would you talk to somebody like that? All right. I'm going to set a goal for myself. I'm going to try to list six differences between my approach and we'll call it a conventional or classical theist approach. Six. I'll hold my fingers up for you. I think I can count to six. (laughs) first of all one is that what how love is defined or the meaning of love in my understanding is the same for creatures as it is for the creator but in classical theology almost all of them at the end of the day say well god's love is different in kind different in definition from creaturely love so there's one sort of overarching uh, difference i think The definition of love should apply both to God and to creatures. Second, uh, classical theism says that God has absolutely no emotions in relation to creation. God might have emotions within God's self or within the Trinity, but not in relation to creation. And I think love almost always includes some emotional component. God has emotions. I think we have emotions. Third, I think God's love is inherently uncontrolling, and our love is uncontrolling. This is going to help, as we've already mentioned about the problem of evil, so that God doesn't allow or permit genuine evils, and is somehow that's somehow loving for God to do that, just like it's not loving for us to allow or permit genuine evils. So that's a big difference. I don't have a controlling God. Classical theism says God either controls everything or potentially could control everything. 
Classical theists, so we're at what now? Number four now. <laughs> Classical theists uh, typically say God's love is only benevolent. It's only giving. It's never receiving. It's another way of saying God is impassable or unaffected or uninfluenced. I think love is always relational. That's both giving and receiving. Our love is like that. God's love is like that. Number five. I think God's love is a love that never punishes in the sense of causing harm to others. And I think our love is also never causing harm to others, never punishing. Uh, so number six. Um, oh, man, I set a goal and now I can't think of a good sixth one. Okay. Sixth, our love is always in response to something previous with an aim for something in the future is another way of saying it's timely. Our love has a time dimension to it. In classical theism, God is outside of time. So God's love can't have a time dimension to it. God can't respond to something that happened a moment ago. God can't have plans for the future as if the future is, does not yet occur. So it can't be timeful like we know of love as timeful in our own lives. So another big difference between the way I understand love and the way classical theists think about love. Well, those are six really good ones. Thanks. <laughs> well done. Yeah, the, the time one is, is so interesting to me, too. Like, I've recently myself been trying to read uh, about time because that fascinates me, and it also hurts my brain. Yeah. And uh, I've had some conversations with uh, R.T. Mullins, Ryan, uh, yeah. who you introduced me to, and uh, he's always fun to talk to. But I think that's that was one thing that, even kind of prior to engaging um, or even now, like I just find myself, I just think in open and relational ways. So like now it's like, I have a hard time being like, Oh, right. People don't all think this way. I have to say this <laughs> a different way. Um, like almost prior everybody does. Almost everybody thinks about open and relational in their everyday life it's just that right some people bracket out god and say well god's just not like that right and, yeah which is interesting <laughs> yeah very but interesting like, the time thing has always been an issue to me because it's like if god i don't know what it means to say god is somehow outside of time because yep. then it's like then in what any meaningful sense of the word can we say god has relationship or is involved somehow in creation <laughs> exactly so nope. it's like it seems like a nice thing to say right like we're trying to make god's glory big or something like that and nope. you know of course god has to be this whatever god is i don't want to say thing because i don't think god is a thing but like god has to be outside of time somehow uh but i never understood that i was like if god is outside time uh, how am I supposed to have a relationship with God? Like you tell me I'm supposed to, if I'm a finite creature who it finds myself experiencing time. Yep. Like, I think bunch, lots of Christians, not only uh, 
Christians in the pews, but especially professional theologians, they're so intent on paying these huge metaphysical compliments to God, they end up proposing ideas that are simply irrational, just don't make sense with the way the world works and the way we think. But they're doing it with this motive to glorify God, make God so much bigger and more than we can ever imagine. But in the end of the day, they make God unintelligible. What an open relational theologian does is say, yeah, there are some ways God is different from us, but we can talk about them without making God unintelligible. And what do you know? It fits with most of Christian scripture. So we got that going for it as well. So there's lots of good reasons to go uh, open and relational. Yeah, and I, I think another, actually, I had this conversation recently uh, with a group of people. Um, I mean, very similar to what you just said, like we, we make these claims about God and then it makes things unintelligible. And then also we see, you know, in that same sense, it then sets God open and like against uh some of the things that we're learning about how reality works or like what the universe looks like and then it makes it seem like the universe is somehow bigger than god like well god (laughs) has to be at least as big as the universe right (laughs) uh and so what i thought was interesting is um as i've and i've also like i i told you previously i've been like trying to read a lot of like quantum physics and stuff like that um which maybe is a silly thing to do by yourself, but I think I've at least learned something (laughs) good, (laughs) but it seems like, you know, there's a, I kind of see like a, a parallel when like back with like the, hopefully I get this right. So I don't seem like an idiot that like Copernicus when like the whole revolution was like, well, maybe like the solar system doesn't work the the way you think it does maybe like everything's not revolving just around the earth but rather like the earth's like when that all first came out the church was like that's heresy you can't say that and he was condemned um but it seems like you know but then eventually that caught on and people were like oh, okay well and then theology caught up and da 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 so like i'm i'm wondering if there's not like another similar parallel going on um within these like things that we keep learning about the universe and how reality works, where it, it does push up against some of perhaps our most preciously held theologies. But at the same time, if our God is not big enough to like include those things that we're learning, then like, is this thing that we're talking about actually God? Yeah. So does that make sense? Like, does that parallel, does does that resonate at all? Like I've been thinking about that recently. There's a reason why open relational thinkers have been the leading voices in the science and religion dialogue in the late 20th and early 21st century. It's because that vision of reality and that vision of God mesh together so well. Now I I don't think God knows the future. So what I'm about to say, I don't want you to think that I know the future, but my hunch is that the future theology will be largely open and relational because theologians will on to developments in contemporary science, contemporary philosophy, culture, et cetera, which all align so much better with an open and relational vision than the God of classical theism. 
Yeah, it's almost like uh, the Christian faith is growing and maturing. <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm hoping so. <laughs> yeah. Which not is without in, a lot of uh, deconstruction along the way, but yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, most most definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think I I, I agree with you. Um, but I I see it almost in a way that like it's going to have to go that way, or things are just going to continue to fall by the wayside because yeah. I think the explanatory power that uh, Christ, like classical theism used to have, it no longer has not because it was like stupid or dumb or like anything like that. Like it still has its value. And especially during its time, it had great explanatory power that helped a lot of people. But as we continue to learn and grow and develop and learn new things, if a system starts to not work anymore, then maybe (laughs) we should, you know, become open to seeing like, okay, what is, what is this thing? uh, Dare I say that God is revealing to us. And how can we, you know, continue to learn and, and grow from there? So yep. that's that's kind of how I look at it. Um, I like it. But also, I mean, obviously, I know that's extremely biased because I'm saying, like, my opinion is right. And hopefully. <laughs> well, another way to look at it is you're attracted to a particular vision and you just fits your intuitions of reality. That's a little bit different than saying I've got all the answers and it just turns out that everything supports me. It's like okay what are these intuitions i have and what model of reality and what model of god best fits them not that my intuitions aren't inerrant infallible not that my intuitions are always correct but they're probably telling us something true about the way i look at the world and so what kind of model of god is going to fit them well yeah that hmm, is a helpful way to look at it it's too like, uh, and I think I've, I've said this to you before, but just based off things like what I've learned and I'm learning about reality, what I have experienced, like my, the experiential knowledge that I have of God. Um, and then also things like the, I mean, the people that I read the most and, and find my home with are a lot of the mystics and like what the mystics have been saying in the contemplatives have been saying for years, uh, work like your yours your own and uh the works of like open relational process theology all of these kind of realms in my life open and relational theology and and process thought seems to be the thing that like kind of like bridges things for me like it's it's intuitive i think is a good word and it seems to work which is why i'm so attracted to it um yeah well what the mystics and the contemplatives contemplatives do is they privilege experience and what open relational thought comes along and says is yes your experience does tell you something true about reality now here's a broader conceptual framework that also makes sense with all these other domains of your life and so the contemplative and the mystics kind of fit in this broader frame framework in a way that i think is very complementary yeah that that actually makes a lot of a lot of sense because I, I I've said this before. I don't think I've said this to you, but I um I used to have this understanding of like I mean the God basically the God of classical theism, and I was and people were always like, oh, you have to have a relationship with this God. You have to meet this God. Da da da. And I'm like, I don't want to meet that God. That God sounds like he's <laughs> angry and yeah. pissy and stuff like that. And so I had 
this one of the major shifts that I've had um, within my own Christian journey is that of moving from head into heart or one way to say that is going from like pure like book intellectual knowledge to experiential knowledge but it's not to cancel each other out right like like the heart the heart knowledge and the head knowledge they they complement one another but the i in order for me to get to the heart i had to go through my intellect because me as a person mm. that's just how i work yeah and um open and relational theology was the intellectual tool that allowed me here in my mind to mm-hmm. to discover and intellectually ascend to so to speak a god who is love that then allowed me to experientially say okay now i want to go meet this dude <laughs> or gal or or yeah. whatever so like i i know on the show i talk a lot about the head to heart movement but i never want to uh disqualify or say that the intellectual stuff isn't important Good. Um, yeah i totally agree yeah, and I mean, there's times I that, forget that. Yeah, that's one of the things with that word mysticism or mystical. Um, I think it's best understood in the way we've been talking about this. This emphasis upon experience is telling us something true about the nature of reality. But some people think of mysticism as meaning irrational or anti-rational. Um, and I don't think it has to mean that, you know, obviously in some instances there might be some irrationality going on but if we think of uh, mysticism as experience and then we're looking for this conceptual framework that has intellectual rigor then open to relational thought i think fits that bill very nicely yeah most definitely or at least i have found that to be the case uh for myself (laughs) Yeah. yeah well tom you have to forgive me i like I said, I, I, and I messaged you before the show, I'm in a weird state of mind today. So I've, I've been kind of all over the place. Um, and we've, we've chased a lot of rabbits, but is there, is there anything in particular, like that to go back to like the story I opened with, uh, that you were really excited about, uh, within Chloroform Love, um, that maybe we didn't get the, to talk about or mention that we could, you know, kind of wrap things up with. I think I'll wrap it up with some of the very last paragraphs in the book, or at least the last pages, maybe not the last paragraphs. Near the end, uh, after looking at all the different ways of thinking about love, proposing a definition, saying God has all kinds of different forms of love, and we ought to have different forms of love too, I suggest that there are three primary ways that God loves us and all of creation. First, God loves us in the sense of seeing in us what is intrinsically valuable and appreciating that, valuing it, honoring it, seeing it as worthwhile. God loves us by looking at us and finding us valuable and then promoting that value, that promoting the well-being that's involved. I call that uh, because of love. It's also a form of love that some people call eros. It's this love that finds value in things and appreciates the well-being of that which it it, uh, sees. Secondly, I think God also loves us sometimes despite the stupid things we choose 
despite the unhelpful things we say, the harm we do to ourselves and to others. I call this in spite of love. God loves us in spite of the, some of the unloving things that we do. And I think that's one of the many ways that you could talk about agape love as God loving us in spite of that which we've done, which is harmful, unhelpful, sinful, whatever. And then finally, I think God has a loving relationship with us in the sense of a friendship or cooperative or collaborative kind of love. And that's more than just a kind of love in the moment or situation. It's an, it's an ongoing working together with God. I think God has this kind of love in which God says, I invite you to be a part of making your life and the lives of others and even my own life, the divine life, better because of what we've done together. I like to call this because of love. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, um, alongside of love. That is the love that's expressed alongside of others working together in common cause to promote overall well-being, to make the world a better place, to enhance flourishing, whatever language you prefer there. So I, I want to end with that. God loves you, me, and all creation because of the value we have in spite of the stupid things we sometimes do and alongside us in working to enhance our lives, all of creation, and even the divine life. Well, I think that's a, a great way to end. And even, even too, like, since it's, you know, you gave three, there's almost like a, you know, the whole Trinity thing going on, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of popular within Christianity, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, but like, I wonder Trinity in this book though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's, oh man, I feel like that's a whole nother conversation. It'd be it fun is, to talk yeah. to you about Trinity stuff at some point um yeah all right i will resist the urge <laughs> thank Sounds you good. thank you uh tom again for for coming on the show and hanging out and dealing with my scatterbrain um i'm not nearly as prepared as i typically like to be uh well, i enjoyed the conversation somehow it was a fun conversation so thank yeah, you i thought we hit on some really important topics and again i appreciate the invitation it was a lot of fun most definitely. You are for sure always welcome. And uh, I'll have to try to bother you about uh, Trinity stuff and see what Sounds happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, listeners, do yourself a favor. Go snag a copy of Chloroform Love and Open the Relational Theology of Well-Being. Um, you will enjoy it as I have. And uh, as always, Thank you for listening. Hopefully, you, hopefully, if you've made it this far, you have found the conversation fun and encouraging and, I don't know, uh, helpful, challenging, uh, essentially loving. <laughs> any other fun? <laughs> yeah, any other fun uh, things that we can throw in there? And then, um, Tom, I'll be sure to, you know, throw your links and such uh, in the uh, uh, message notes. But for people who don't read message notes, where would you uh, like people to come find you at? Well, I have a personal website that's my full name, Thomas J J A Y Ord, O O R D dot com. I direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology, and that website is the letter C, the number four, 
the letters ort.com, cfortcom Those are probably the two uh, best ways to get a hold of me. Uh, you can find my email if you probably just punch my name in somewhere on uh, Google. You probably get you probably get my email address. Sweet listeners, there you go. Uh, go check those things out again. Snag yourself a copy of Poor Form Love. And as always, guys, go in peace. <laughs>